And if you want to take your Bibles and turn, we're going to start in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. So we just keep on trucking through. Well, I want to start by asking you a question. What do you do when you're afraid? I mean, is there really a more practical question that we could ask? What do you do when you're afraid? I wonder how many of you have felt fear, dread, uneasiness, or anxiety this year. How many of you felt it? this month, this day, this hour. Maybe the fact that I'm bringing it up to talk about is making you feel uneasy right now. Maybe as we speak, you're feeling that way. We, if we have those feelings, and to some degree we all do, we need to know what to do with them. We need to know where to go with them. We need to know how to respond. Because one of the most dangerous things we can do with fear is to just passively marinate in it. You've likely read or heard that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, here in 1 Samuel, we might say that David was a man of troubles acquainted with fear. Last week, we saw him running from Saul into the presence of the priest Ahimelech, and God provides for David when he goes to Ahimelech, despite David misleading the priest, and, and David is given both the bread that he needs for his journey and he's given the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom he had killed. But David knows, and we're going to see in a couple weeks why he knows, but uh, he knows that it's not safe to stay with Ahimelech, and, and he books it. But it's interesting because of all the places to run to, he runs to the city of Gath. So it seems that in escaping there, he's, he's hoping for some measure of safety. And so let's, let's see how that goes. 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15 says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, to, to Achish, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in their dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So the first thing we should know is we can see why David's running, right? Saul is out for his life, and so that's a good reason to head to the next town. We, we even see in the New Testament places like John 4, where Jesus knows that the Pharisees are out for his life, and Jesus flees to the next town. So it's not an act of cowardice or whatever to, to be running here. It's just a logical act. Get away from the person who wants to kill you. However, if we look at verse 11, we see there's an issue in, in David's running, it, he's been recognized. <laughs> he, he thinks he's fleeing to safety, and instead it seems like he's jumped out of the, the frying pan, as it were, and into the fire. And if we're reading carefully, we can see why this particular town knows who David is. He fled to Achish, 
king of the city of Gath. Well, who else was from Gath? Only the most famous of David's ten thousands of victims, Goliath, is from Gath. Chapter 17, verse 4 tells us where Goliath is from. And so David flees into the arms of the city whose hero he had killed, <laughs> carrying the dead hero's sword. Doesn't seem like the best move, you know, and maybe not the brightest. They say hindsight's 2020, and David may have realized, like, oh, there was a flaw in my planning here. When David realizes the mess that he's in, he panics. And in his fear, he decides that the only recourse for his situation, the only way he's going to escape is to start acting like a madman, to start acting crazy. And, and so he starts scratching the city gates, he's slobbering, like, you know, he's acting like, I'm a cat scratching the walls, I'm a dog's, like, got rabies or something, foaming at the mouth. He's just, he's just acting disgusting, right? And, and the ruse does disgust his, his host slash captor, Akish, who then asks his servants, why in the world did you bring me this crazy guy? Like, what, what is the point? Like, why are you afraid of him? We, I've got plenty of crazy guys here. Why do I want him in my house, too? Who has time for this nonsense? You, you, before we move on, I think it is interesting in verse 11 that, that the servants of Achish say to him, is not this David the king of the land? Now, they don't say the king of Israel. They know the king of Israel is Saul. But there seems to be this recognition that David is someone with so much power. And it's, it's almost like through the mouths of these Philistine captors, God is speaking prophetically. He does this in other places where someone speaks better than they know, like uh, John chapter 11, where Caiaphas prophesies that someone should die for the nation instead of instead of all the nation dying, you know, and it says that he was speaking as a prophet, as the high priest that year, not knowing that he's, he just thinks he's laying out a good plan. That's not John chapter 11, now that I've said that. It's John chapter 12. But anyway, the, the point is that, that, that God is speaking through these guys in, in a way that they don't even know. They, they're just saying, why would we want someone with this much power coming in here? He's probably going to kill you, Ahimelech, and take over. And, and then Ahimelech sees him acting like he's a crazy guy and he's like, hey, yeah, I'm really worried. I'm really worried. This is a strange text, right? We, re we read this, I think it was last night, and Andy asked me, so you're, you're going to preach that? <laughs> uh, and it's a fair question, right? What are we supposed to learn? What, what can we gain from this story of fear, of fake insanity, and of a king who has no time for the crazy. I think we need to pause and try to put ourselves in the position of the original hearers of 1 Samuel, the original readers, if we will. Now, as we said back when we started studying 1 Samuel, we don't know for sure who wrote it or when it was written, but it was likely written near to, perhaps even during, the Babylonian captivity. And if it were written during the captivity and then became more widespread and people, more people started reading it and hearing it during the captivity or shortly thereafterwards, this was a time when the word of God was beginning to take a more central place in the lives of the people. Following the destruction of Solomon's temple, people started to shift their, their view from the temple being the center of everything 
to the word of God. This during the 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 captivity and the time following is when the synagogue starts to develop, the time when they would get up and they would read the scroll and everybody gathers there as as a part of their worship. Part of that Bible that the people would become more and more familiar with would be the Psalms. And there are two Psalms, Psalms 34 and 56, that those people would be familiar with. Both of them are Psalms of David. And interestingly, both of their headings, the heading in Psalm 34 and the heading of Psalm 56, suggest that he penned them either during or shortly after this terrifying experience before Achish, where, where David likely thinks he's going to be executed. And so what I want to do these next two weeks is to just look at these two psalms. First, Psalm 56, and then Psalm 34 next week, and see what lessons we can draw from them that will inform our view of this story. David is obviously afraid here before Achish, and verse 12 makes that clear. But what does he do with that fear? And so if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to just turn to Psalm 56. We're going to read that psalm in its entirety. It's just 13 verses. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, that's probably like the musical tune that it's played to, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are evil against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So in these 13 verses, we find four aspects to a godly response to fear. So I want to look at them each in turn. Aspect number one of a godly response to fear is number one, don't minimize your fears. Our first response to fear, if we're Christians, can be to remember a verse like Joshua 1.9, where God says, or the, the angel of the Lord uh, representing God speaks to Joshua and he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And we remember that when we're afraid and we tend to interpret it as, Well, God must not think this is a big deal. I shouldn't be afraid and I'm stupid for feeling this way. What's wrong with me? God says, Don't fear. So why do these circumstances feel like such a big deal to me? Why do they make me afraid? 
We'll come back in a moment to what's happening in, in Joshua chapter 1. But note David's example here in Psalm 56. He clearly does not minimize his struggles or those things that he's afraid of in any way. Verses 1 and 2, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. David feels like all day, every day, all he experiences is oppression. He's trampled on by those who are proud and by those who are mighty. So what does he do? Does he try to pretend that's not happening? Does he try to pretend it's not a big deal? No, he cries out, help me, God, help me. This is more than I can take. Verse 5, all day long they injure my cause. That, that could also be translated, they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. David feels like his every step is being watched, as if he can't do anything apart from his enemy that isn't a part of his enemy's plan to destroy him and send him to the grave. It's like, God, no matter where I go, whether I'm in Israel, whether I'm in Gath, my enemies, they're just waiting for me. They're trying to kill me. They're, they're lurking. It's like First Peter talks about Satan being a, a roaring lion, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. He David says, they're all like that. They're all just waiting for me. They're all trying to get me. What can I do? Are you this frank with God in your prayers? I'll confess that I struggle to pray in this way. Prayer in general can be hard for me. It's not something I'm really great at. But I, when I, when I come... To God, it's really hard to be this raw, to, to, to pray in, in a way that's, God, here is my soul. Here's what troubles me. Please help me, Lord. That kind of prayer, oh, I, I want to minimize things. I, I want to convince myself that whatever it is that I'm worried about or fearful of just isn't a big deal. But you know what? If you're worried about it, you think it's a big deal, right? <laughs> and the first aspect of a godly response to that fear is taking it to God and being honest with him. He already knows. Like, you're not fooling God when you try to minimize it. But you've got to take it to him. Do you know he is glad to hear that prayer? He is glad to hear that prayer. It's a practical tip. I don't know if this will help you or not. It helps me. When my brain feels like it's in a million different places and I can't even figure out what it is that I'm afraid of sometimes or what it is that I'm struggling with, sometimes to just sit down and write that prayer out just crystallizes things for me. I, I'm not like a journaler, so I don't have like chronicles of, of my life daily, but I have tons of journals just because I like notebooks. But uh, they just, every now and then, there'll be all kinds of random stuff, and then there'll just be, like, a written prayer. Like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to pray, and so I just sat down and wrote it out. Uh, I don't know, that, that helps me to, to, 
to figure out what it is I'm thinking, what it is I'm feeling, what it is that I'm afraid of. As the hymn that we sometimes sing exhorts us, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Or as Peter says over in 1 Peter 5, Peter 5, 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now here's how he defines humbling yourselves. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't minimize your troubles. Cast them on him. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Which takes us to the second aspect of a godly response to fear. Aspect number two, remember that he cares. Remember that he cares. It's all well and good to say, take it to God. But what will actually drive us to do that? What will drive us to take things to the Lord? Only a settled conviction that he actually cares what's going to happen in your life. And this is where verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 56 are so helpful to us. It says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. You ever lie awake at night, unable to sleep because of your troubles? Or perhaps it's the daytime that bothers you. Uh, that's me. I don't lie awake at night. I just, I, my head hits the pillow and I can't barely stay awake. But all day long, I can be consumed. You can't get your mind off of this problem or that. And it feels like you're tossing and turning, not in bed at night, but in your head all day. Do you know that God sees each and every one of those tossings, be they physical or mental, emotional or spiritual? He knows and not just in some vague, God-knows-everything sort of sense. He's counting them. He's not counting because he's interested in the number. He, he's interested in the state of your soul. God sees your anxieties. He sees your fear. And his caring eye is upon you. Do you ever cry? Do you ever feel like you've been piling up tears upon tears, and there's no hope of things ever getting better. No one cares. No one else knows. Maybe you deeply resonate with the words of Proverbs 14.10, which says, the soul knows its own bitterness. No one else knows it. Your soul knows its own bitterness. No one can understand, and worse still, no one cares. No one's trying to know. But friend, God does know. And he does care. Those tears you cried last night, they're in his bottle. The, the tears you cried when your spouse spoke harshly to you, they're in his bottle. Those tears you cried when your father hurt you, they're in his bottle. Those tears you cried when you lost a child, they're in his bottle. Those tears you cried when you were a little child and you had a bad dream, they're in his bottle. Those tears you cried when you felt like God himself 
had abandoned you there in his bottle. Every single one. God knows and God cares. They're in his book, carefully recorded. And this is the truth that gives David the confidence to say at the end of verse 9, this I know, that God is for me. Thinking back to Joshua 1.9, do you realize that this is precisely the message God is communicating to Joshua in that passage? He's saying, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for, because, the Lord your God is with you. He's there with you. The presence of God is what is supposed to give Joshua comfort and strength to encourage him, to, to build him up. God never downplays his circumstances. Joshua is about to undertake some scary stuff. But he does give him the encouragement, the strengthening gift of his personal presence. He knows, he cares, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is right here with you right now. Jesus tells the disciples in John chapter 16 and verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus ascends back to the Father after his death and burial resurrection. He ascends back to the Father's right hand. But from the right hand of the Father, the Father and the Son pour forth the Spirit on Pentecost. And now at the moment that a, a believer in Jesus Christ comes to faith, the Spirit is poured out on them. And God lives with you. And he's here, Jesus says, as the helper, the strengthener, the encourager we need in our hour of fear. He enables us to move to the third aspect of a godly response to fear. That third aspect is trust God to be your safety. Oh, how easy it is for us to look at our circumstances as if they're the ultimate indicators or the arbiters, the, the things that determine our reality. To look at our external circumstances or even the circumstances of our emotional state and to think that simply because we can't see a way out, there must not be a way out. But the framing truth of this psalm is that that we don't look to our circumstances or to our cleverness or to our own abilities or to what other people can do as the final source of reality and truth. We look to God. Verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God. And in verse 4 we read where David's trust ultimately lies. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Note how David begins that sentence there in verse 4. In God whose word I praise. Commenting on this passage, Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer gives us a biblical definition of trust. He says, whose word? Trust is not a feeling that it will all work out for the best. It is a conviction arising from what God himself has said a confidence in promises. An important part of trusting God lies simply in knowing his word, knowing his promises like we find here in Psalm 56, and then banking 
not on what I see, not on what I feel, not on what I think my experience is, but banking on his promises as what's finally true. Acting in trust that God, not my bank account, is in control. Acting in trust that God, not my spouse or my child, is the most important person in the universe. And acting in trust that God, not the president or my boss, is the authoritative ruler of my circumstances. David asks an interesting question here. He says, what can flesh do to me? Well, the obvious answer for David in 1 Samuel 21, where he's running for his life and now captured by the Philistines, is man can kill you. <laughs> that's, that's what they can do. They can maim you. They can harm you. They can do all kinds of wrong to you. That's what people can do. We've all experienced that. People can do all kinds of things to us. And yet we find David's refrain repeated, repeated down in verses 10 and 11. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Through his process of casting his anxiety upon God, of taking his fears to God in prayer, of remembering that God cares about his circumstance, then David is able to have the perspective of, okay, the all-powerful God is in control. He knows my tossings and my tears, and I can trust him in the midst of those tossings and those tears. No matter what, I can trust God. I've got a Bible. It's not the one I use normally now. It's a New King James that I got when I was 12 years old. And I just remember going through a time in life where I, I didn't understand. Like, you know, I was in high school, so, like, all of the problems I had in high school were pretty small, but they felt like they were the end of the world, right? And, and all I could think, like, I couldn't even open up my Bible and read sometimes. But I just wrote on the, I don't know what you would call that, like the side, I took a pen and I just like really worked hard to write it on the sides of the pages, I can always trust God. And I didn't necessarily believe that when I wrote it there, to be honest with you. Um, and you almost wonder like, is that what David's doing here? He's like preaching to himself, I feel so afraid, but I can trust God. No matter what, I can trust him. Even the punishment of his enemies is something that falls under the category of those things which David entrusts to God. Verse 7, For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. David wants justice to be done. He's not giving up on that hope. But again, he trusts God with those results. He prays with Abraham in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham's praying that, trying, really wanting God to not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because his nephew lives down there. And God ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but he provides Lot a way of escape. God, God always does what is right. David is able to endure this fearful time, this time when he's running from Saul and caught by Achish, 
only because his confidence is is in the Lord. Is your confidence in the Lord this morning? One of the biggest struggles many people have is trusting God. And oftentimes what it comes down to is an unwillingness to actually trust him to be God and do what's right. It's hard to trust that God will do what's right, is, is what I'm saying there. Maybe you disagree with his assessment of you, that you're a sinner. Or maybe you know that you're a sinner, but you just can't believe that he actually loves you. But as pastor and author Tim Keller often puts it, the the gospel tells you that you are far worse than you could ever imagine. So bad that the Son of God had to die to bear the weight of your sins. But that same gospel also tells you that you are far more loved than you ever dared to hope. Because the Son of God did come while you were still in your sins, and Jesus died for you. That's a God you can trust. That's a God, verse 9 says, who is for you. That's a God, Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him? graciously give us all things what then shall we say well David helps us there as well aspect number four our fourth and concluding aspect of a godly response to fear is found in verses 12 and 13 I must perform my vows to you O God I will render thank offerings to you for you have delivered my soul from death yes my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life fourth aspect of a godly response to fear is to praise him at all times. David recognizes that God delivers us for a purpose, obedience and praise. Have you ever, have you experienced God's salvation? Then give him thanks. Has he saved your soul from the pit and given you life? Then walk in obedience to him. What, what David seems to be encouraging, both as a help in our fears and as a response to them is not a denial that they exist remember point one but a reorientation of our thoughts cast your worries upon christ be open with him about your struggles and then meditate not on those fears but on his glories meditate on his power and how he has delivered you in the past and trust that he who has delivered your soul from death will keep your feet from falling I just want to close by reading a comment on this psalm from Matthew Henry. It's in his introductory comments to the psalm, 56. And he says, It seems by this and many other psalms that even in times of the greatest trouble and distress, David never hung his harp upon the willow trees, never unstrung it or laid it by, but that when his dangers and fears were the greatest, he was still in tune for singing God's praises. He was in imminent peril when he penned this song, at least when he meditated it. Yet even then, his meditation on God was sweet. How pleasantly may a good Christian, in singing or reading this psalm, rejoice in God and praise him for what he will do as well as for what he has done. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are a God who saves those who are in distress, who is for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? 
Would you give us hearts that are fixed on the glories of Jesus who bore all of our sins and our sorrows and our shame and he carried them to the cross. We don't have to stand ashamed before you, the perfect God of all the universe, because Jesus bore that all away. We don't have to be afraid because you are a God who will do that for us. How will you not then give us everything we need in this life and much more so take us safely to eternal life with you? Father, give us hearts that trust in you and hearts that are filled with praise. We ask it in Jesus' name.